1: Today, we're going to be joined by another one of our friends and colleagues from up in Canada. We're going to have a a series of updates to bring you on, well, on a variety of things. Uh, We're going to start out talking about the breeding population survey and kind of what happened with it. We're also going to talk about some uh, habitat conditions and and a few other things along the way. So with that, let me welcome in our guest, Frank Baldwin, a waterfowl biologist with Canadian Wildlife Service up in Manitoba. Frank, uh, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Thanks very much, Mike.
1: Yeah, we're, we're going to kind of skip over detailed introduction of yourself this year. You joined us last year for an update on some of the, uh, I, I guess, well, it was a, another sort of COVID-induced update. to Figure out how the how all the all the restrictions, travel restrictions, were affecting banding and kind of some of the Arctic goose um, issues of that at that time. So, folks can go back and find that episode if they want to hear about your background and and what it is that. You know how you made it to your current position, but waterfowl biologist there in Canada, and wanted to have you on to talk about some of the updates uh, of for this summer. We're still dealing with some effects of uh, of the global pandemic, and I've been seeing some some questions and concerns and uncertainty uh, from people on social media, kind of wondering what all is going on with the, the survey cancellation, why we we can't fly the survey again this year. Uh, and, and I think I've said on a few other episodes that we're trying to connect with Dr. Ken Richkus, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, to kind of get uh, that there insight and perspective and you know comments on what went into that decision but the Canadian wildlife service also plays a role in in the survey and certainly plays a large role in uh it, in kind of facilitating the fish and wildlife service's ability to come into the the country to uh, to actually conduct the surveys so Frank, for, for those that may not really appreciate the complexity of what all goes into this international survey, kind of set this up for us and uh, talk about how the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Canadian Wildlife Service interact with regard to this survey. And, and then we can talk about kind of what went into the decision for uh, cancellation.
0: Yeah, certainly, Mike. So, uh, absolutely. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is our main partner in, in pulling off the BPOP annually and have been over you know, the duration of the survey we're involved sort of early in the year, early in the spring in, in looking at uh, timing for the in the traditional area. So um, based on phenology, you know, based on snow cover and, and melt and um, figuring out sort of the, the time windows when we'd like to fly. And uh, those discussions start happening very early in the spring. And then there's uh, once those sort of dates are, are, are uh, ironed out, then there's that work that's done on the U.S. side um, to get approvals, to come up and, and use the airspace and, uh, you know, move between the provinces. So typically, um, each, each ground crew typically, typically is associated with one air crew. And then when those air crews finish up in areas where there's ground surveys in the Southern parts of the prairies, uh, they, they they then go on and, and move up into the boreal and, and Northern areas to fly just the aerial, you know, portions where we don't have ground surveys. So this year, um, you know, presented a number of challenges, again, um, both, uh, well, from a few standpoints, from the the fact that the border remains closed and open for uh, essential purposes only, and also um, from, f- you know, for issues around our, our own approvals, uh, Canadian Wildlife Service to conduct uh, ground surveys. Um, so a variety of issues there um, for us, uh, which involved... Being in close proximity, you know, using vehicles to um, overnight accommodation, in some cases, movement between provinces. So the crew that we have in southern Manitoba, we also covered eastern Saskatchewan Um, and uh, the rules that we had in place and still have in place here in Manitoba require a a post isolation period after you return. So if we were going out of province, then we're isolating for, you know, 14 days when we when we come back. So a number of challenges there, and um, we, we uh, only just recently received some good news on the, on the uh, side of fieldwork in, in Canadian wildlife service in that um, it looks like we're going to be able to start conducting some easy to mitigate fieldwork uh, sometime in June here. Um, so things that involved uh, single vehicle use, no overnight stays, you know, no accommodation, things like that. So we're just just going to get s- appro- uh, some limited approval to start doing field work in June, which is really good news for the rest of the field season. But um, around the time that we normally conduct the BPOP, uh, we were, you know, Canada was really dealing with in the in the in the midst of a third wave um, in Manitoba. Here we still are. We're sort of just coming off the peak of our third wave. So. There was a number of things that conspired to really, uh, yeah, prevent the running of the BPOP for the second year in a row.
1: Yeah, so Frank, I want to go back a little bit and take people back to the early months of this year uh, in, and and kind of allow them to see it at least the way that I did. Because that was the question coming into this year is, are we going to be able to conduct the survey? I know everyone was hoping that we would be able to. Ken Richkus last year when we spoke with him certainly shared that that sentiment that yes we intend to conduct the survey n- next year assuming that we have the pandemic under control to a point where we can do those types of activities and it's it's my understanding from the some of the conversations that i that i was listening to from people that i was talking with things were lining up if we go back to let's say february or march and people were looking at the trajectory of, of the of covid cases at least in the states and in canada at that time people were optimistic back in February and maybe and in, in even into March that we were gonna be able to pull this off. Um, the, the caseloads were coming down in the States. It's my understanding that the Fish and Wildlife Service was ramping up to um to to conduct the surveys. You know, they're the ones that provide the the planes, the pilots and, and the uh, the observers. And so they were kind of prepping for the surveys. I think, I, I don't know, and this is where we'll have to talk with Ken, but I don't know what kind of communications were happening between the high levels of the Canadian Wildlife Service and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at that time. But it's my understanding that everyone was gearing up to get these get these conducted. But then, as you pointed out, as we got closer to the time when, you, you know, sort of the go time, as you might want to refer to it, we began to see, as you pointed out, increase in COVID cases in Canada, and there were was not going to be any kind of exemptions given to the U.S. pilots and biologists to come into Canada to do that, uh, you know. And so, as we began to hear that in, boy, I guess it would have been mid-late April when we kind of started to hear that might be the possibility, we started we to started think about, well, what could be done in place of that. We're not going to be able to f- have the full scale survey. And I actually know from from hearing a presentation of yours uh, earlier this year that the Canadian Wildlife Service themselves were prepping to do ground surveys. At that point, I think it was already pretty clear that the, the border was not that U.S. pilots and biologists weren't going to be allowed to come into the states or in, into Canada. CWS was planning to conduct some ground based surveys, I think along the lines that you normally do through your, your ground transects that that serve as visibility correction factors. But things got so bad COVID-wise there in Canada that you couldn't even do that, right?
0: That's that's right. Yeah. I'd say we were we were really optimistic in, you know, March and leading up into April, even that we would be able to um, at least pull together maybe a ground part of the survey. I think we had concerns all along about the ability for the for the Fish and Wildlife Service pilots to to access Canada. And I wasn't in, involved in those those discussions. were at a very high level, um, you know, between the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and 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 you know uh, folks in Canada. Um, but we were we were sort of gearing up to to do the ground portion, you know, hoping that, well, maybe, maybe the planes might be able to get across, but also if they didn't, that we'd be able to put together some estimates of ponds and ducks, you know, some of the more common ducks and uh, things like Canada geese based on just um, ground surveys in the, in the strata that we actually have ground surveys. So in the traditional area, we don't have ground surveys in all of the strata, especially as you move further north. Um, but we did some work, uh, earlier in the spring to look at our ability to produce estimates and how they correlated with the aerial estimates. Um, and they were, they were fairly good, you know, they're, they have more variants associated with them, but they're fairly good. And, um, so we were, we were gearing up, uh, uh, you know, to do that work. So we were, we were, um, getting staff in, you know, position, we were getting pro- our protocols ready and right about that time is when, um, you know, the variants, uh, became a really big part of the equation in the pandemic and, and, uh, and you know, many places were seeing their case numbers increase and, and that's, and we still didn't, at that point, we still didn't have approval to do field work, but we were working on the protocols to get approval, you know, when it became clear that it just simply wasn't going to be possible. Um, so that was around the end of April. I think we made that, we, we got end of April, early May, we got, um, information that, that field work for May, uh, nationally, was was going to be cancelled for Canadian Wildlife Service, uh, other than a very f- you know s- few select projects.
1: There's multiple reasons why I want to have this conversation. One is just to provide people with an update on how things developed and where we are right now, and then kind of a look into the future. But the other is to help people realize that hey, the the waterfowl biologists, the managers in the field, the ones that conduct the surveys, the ones that 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 orchestrate the surveys, uh, were we're getting ready. We're thinking intently about how can we how can we do these surveys? I don't want people to think that everyone was just sitting back. So oh, we don't have to do the survey again this year. That was, was far from the truth. The, the biologists, the managers were really intent on conducting the surveys and we're going to we're trying to do everything that we could to 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 make that happen. These decisions on what field work can and cannot occur and what type of, uh, you know, whether individuals from the States can, can go into Canada and occupy the airspace and move, move around across the provinces, interact with local populations. Those decisions come from, you know, much higher levels within our, uh, within the agencies. And, you know, that's just, that's just the way it is. They make those decisions for the best interest of the health and welfare welfare of the people and all other sorts of things considered. So, uh, you know, I want to communicate that clearly that the biologists and managers associated with this research or resource were were very intent on doing what we could to conduct the surveys. Um, you know, so the, the other reason why this conversation is so important and why people were wanting to do everything that we could to get get data on this uh, from this year is that we are uh, we're heading into a what's Turning out to be a fairly severe, extreme drought in certain parts of the prairies, and, and so the data that you talked about that your crew, your staff were gearing up to collect from from those ground transects, although it would not have been used in any formal fashion in harvest regulations uh, for this year, it would have given us a pretty good barometer of how severe this drought is, you know, relative to uh, pond numbers and. Uh, and and duck populations. So I want to make sure we, you know, that's the other thing that has kind of factored into this. Is that kind of on your mind too, as you're thinking about really needing information or wanting information this year, Frank? Absolutely. That the wetland conditions and, uh,
0: you know, the drought indices across the prairies were definitely a driver, I'd say, for us looking to complete, a you know, a ground survey only if we had to. Uh, Hard to say what decision, you know, whether it would have been as big a priority, I suspect it would have been, even if we were in decent wetland conditions since we, you know, hadn't had a, had a a survey, uh, you know, the, in the the previous year, but yeah, it's extremely dry. Um, and, uh, really across Manitoba and Saskatchewan, um, Alberta, less so Alberta's had some recent precipitation. That's, that's really, you know, helped their situation there. Their their soil moistures are kind of closer to averages, um, and, you know, long term averages. Whereas in Saskatchewan, they're sixty to eighty five percent of normal, and and in Manitoba, you know, more like forty percent. Extremely, extremely dry in Manitoba. Uh, certainly, um, the driest I've you know experienced. Uh, you know, seeing things that you're not used to used to seeing when you've when you've been around for really great wetland conditions your entire life uh you know the the sky in some days is sort of yellowy brown from all the dust that's stirred up and ponds that are supposed to be permanents and never go dry or are dry it's uh extremely dry in manitoba especially
1: frank was it you that was telling me about uh seeing dry ditches Takes you back to your childhood when y'all would go out to the ditches and and harvest topsoil and bring it back to your garden. Was that you? Yep. And that you had it had been so long, this is like the first time you've seen that since your childhood because the you know the lack of precipitation is allowing the the roadside ditches to dry up and expose some of that sediment.
0: That's right. When I was a when I was a kid in the '80s, we we used to harvest some topsoil out of the ditches that would blow there across the extremely dry fields and. I really noticed that in late March, early April, here you know fields that were full of soil, um, and even you know creeks that normally have are overflowing, uh, not even a trickle in them this year. So we were, yeah, we were pretty desperate to get out and get some some pond data um, from those ground surveys, but uh, it just just wasn't possible. And like you said, those decisions are made at a very high level, and you know they're they're made for they're made for good good reasons too. So they're they're taking into account the health and safety of staff. And also, you know, the overall population, the strain on the healthcare system. So that was a I know that was a big part of the considerations for the decisions on field work. And, you know, in Manitoba here right now, we have uh, dozens of people um, that are in uh, intensive care units in other provinces that have had to be flown to other provinces because our system is currently overwhelmed right now.
1: Wow. Well, uh, we're certainly thinking about y'all up there and, and I know you'll get it under control here. here pretty soon with the vaccines rolling out. And I, uh, you know, I have, I have family that live in, in Ontario as well as Manitoba. And so we're in contact with them recently and kind of get updates on, on how things are going. And, um, yeah it's you're going in the right direction um hit a pretty big speed bump here recently but uh confident that things are gonna start improving uh they they certainly have down here in the states and um as we were talking before we kind of started recording it it's a good feeling to be able to resume some semblance of normalcy and look forward to you all being able to experience that as well uh, i i wanted to i wanted to uh, i guess Yeah. So we're without any kind of habitat, large scale habitat population data for the second year in a row uh, across the major breeding areas for waterfowl here in North America. There will be some data collected from individual states in the U.S. And I believe the Fish and Wildlife Service is going to be able to conduct some of their surveys in Alaska. Uh, We'll talk with Ken who's Ken Richkus about that, hopefully. But uh, yeah, we're we're starting to get back some of that data. It's not not full scale the way we wanted to this year. And obviously, we're missing the big piece in terms of the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey. But um, from a harvest regulation perspective, we're going to talk to Ken about this on the U.S. side. But from the Canadian side, um, how does like so I know on the U.S. side, the harvest regulations for this upcoming year, 2021 into 2022, they have already been set here in the States because they're they were set based on predictions from last year, pond and population level predictions last year. So the drought that we're seeing right now, the lack of data that we're seeing right now is gonna have no bearing on the upcoming regulation, on the regulations for the upcoming hunting season in the state. What about in Canada? I know y'all use a little bit of a different system, but tell me about that for people that may be interested does this the, how did this affect your uh, harvest or your, your waterfowl regulations
0: similar to the us our regulations are set here for this coming fall and uh, we have a biennial process for setting harvest regulations for for migratory birds so this coming uh december um we have uh regulatory proposals that um go through a uh uh review process and then through a public consultation period. And those regulations are for, um, the 2022, 2023 hunting seasons. And, um, that will, so that, so that, that's happening this coming winter. And, um, just speaking for the prairies here. Um, so we, we make in Canada, we make, uh, you know, regional decisions on those regulations and speak. I just want to speak for Prairie Canada only where, where I'm situated. And, uh, I don't think we're anticipating, any you know any uh, major regulatory uh, changes to come through that uh, that process this December we really make decisions harvest management decisions using you know long-term averages we try not to try not to focus on you know the smaller short, sort of short-term blips in uh, you know abundance and in uh, harvest so um, slightly different process um, but the take-home point is that this year's regulations are already set.
1: If I understand things correctly, when Canada sets harvest regulations, you do it for a two-year cycle? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, so you don't have the potential for year-to-year changes in harvest regulations the way we do in the state.
0: We don't anymore. There is the ability for emergency regulations, but uh, I don't think that, uh, I can't think of a c- scenario where, you know, there would be a uh, an emergency regulation for harvest management.
1: What happens next year or over the coming year is obviously going to be of great interest to a lot of people, uh, waterfowl hunters, as well as waterfowl managers. And that's something that we'll keep uh, keep our finger on the pulse of and have some people on to talk about that. Um, how are we going to be setting regulations for next year whenever we're missing two years worth of data? I know those questions are running through the heads of a lot of people. And as we've done all along, I, I want to uh, uh, reassure our listeners that this this group of birds North American waterfowl is the most intensively studied well studied of any on the planet so if there's ever a group of uh, a group of animals that can uh, that can you know that's in good condition and that can be managed safely and effectively with uh, with a hiccup in our data stream the way we have uh, w- the way we have right now it's going to be this group of birds we have t- uh, hundreds thousands of people working and thinking about this group of birds and uh, we're going to try to bring some of those people on to share some of the thinking that goes into those decisions but uh, just want to reassure people that you know waterfowl populations came into this this developing drought for most species species still in really good shape based on our population estimates so uh, you know that's something to be thankful for and it's a reflection of a lot of the great habitat and population management that has occurred for this for this group of birds over the past you know half century and and even before that quite frankly over the past century i think we can say
0: i'd say too mike just just very you know very resilient group of birds too you know as, as you know and we've seen here speaking for some of the populations that that we monitor here on the in the prairies and and their harvest rates these these birds are you know have have harvest rates the proportion of the population that's taken by by hunters you know that are that are a fair bit lower than they have been you know historically and we've seen populations recover quickly from very low levels you know throughout the history of the of the breeding population survey so um, you know so that, so that's part of the rationale that we you know use for not making sort of short, very decisions based on, you know, very short term changes in abundance.
1: Frank, uh, I have a couple of other things here I want to talk with you about. You know, you've mentioned one thing early on and this is let's go ahead and kind of cover this. I know it's going to be on people's minds as they're as they're listening to this. But where do we stand with the border closure? And are you hearing anything that you can share the, with regard to potential opening of the border later later this year? Uh, any anything that you can share?
0: Sure. So the the border is currently uh, closed, and that uh, that closure extends to June twenty first. Uh, so that's been extended. I think it's been extended on about a monthly basis since the beginning of the pandemic, and um, uh, just based on the media reports, it it sounds like the provinces are working with the federal government on. Reopening the border, so the federal government has the final say, obviously. Um, but the timelines, people are speculating, but the the, the timelines are really unknown, and and uh, you know are thought to depend really on vaccination rates in both countries. So, just to give people a, a summary of uh, of that, um, currently in Canada, about fifty nine percent of the population has um, one dose, and in, uh, in the U.S. it's fifty one percent, and uh, and the U.S. has a much larger proportion that are fully vaccinated, about 41%, whereas only 6% here in Canada. So um, it, the media reports really focus on getting those vaccination rates up and and that being a really a key part of opening the border. And that's that's really important for, you know, the next phase of field programs that we have coming up, which include um, preseason duck banning in Prairie Canada, where, you know, a large proportion of the mallards, banded in prairie canada or banded by u.s crews you know be the official wildlife service or you know the crew that normally comes up from the mississippi flyway so um so so we're hopeful to see some movement there um in time for that work to begin in early august but uh, the clock is definitely ticking
1: frank i want to go back to something you said regarding vaccination rates and, and this is you know, normally we wouldn't do this but because normally we wouldn't you know see uh, look to talk about something of this nature, but but people have become infatuated with statistics and data and science over the past year. So you said something that may jump out to some of our listeners here in the States. I think you said the percentage of the population in Canada that, that has received at least one dose is over 50 percent, but the percentage that has received two doses is down around six percent. Did I hear that correctly? That's correct. Yep. So that is that, that's the thing that would have jumped out to people here in the States because we never saw that disparity in the percentage that uh, had been received at least one vaccine and those that were fully vaccinated. And so I want to kind of explain that if, if, that, if people are scratching their head on why that would be. And if I remember correctly, it's because Canada sort of took a different strategy recognizing kind of the, some of the limitations you were having and struggles you were having in getting access to uh, a large number of vaccines or whatever the challenges might've been with the vaccine administration you know, protocols there. I think Y'all kind of prioritized the administration of the first vaccine uh real highly you know wanting to get as many people with at least one vaccine in them as as opposed to the you know following up two to three weeks after do i have that remotely correct yeah
0: you've got your spot on there so yeah there was um there was issues around supply and the decision was made to yeah get as many first doses out as possible into the general population mostly on it was mostly an age-based criteria here and so people so the second dose doses are just wrapping up now really in the last two weeks. Um, so even, even you know, senior citizens here that didn't have any kind of prior health issues, they're just starting to get their second doses like now. So, and then that's the second phase is expected to go much, much quicker than the first phase just based on supply. So, you know, we're we're hearing kind of projections that everyone should be eligible for a second dose, I think, by, I think they said by around September.
1: Well, I'm sure a lot of people here in the States would like to see that date moved up to about July. <laughs>
0: Especially the duck hunters. Yeah,
1: That's right. That's right. People here in September and they're doing the math and they're thinking, okay, well, it's not until two weeks after you receive that second dose that you're considered fully vaccinated. And, you know, so those decisions roll from there. So it's going to be cutting it close, I think, is is what a lot of people are going to be calculating in their head right now. But uh, yeah, we'll continue to keep an eye on that and, and hope for the best. Now, I, I did want to transition here real quick Uh, Because you did reference this and talk about implications of the border closure, travel restrictions and other other things in place there in Canada with regard to the other field work, uh, Arctic goose colony work goose banding work, duck banding? Where do we stand on any of those types of things? What have been some of the other casualties of the pandemic in Canada this year?
0: Sure. I'll, I'll talk about Arctic goose banding first. Um, so we, uh, Canada Wildlife Service runs uh, sites on Baffin Island, Southampton Island. And we have uh, two crews that work in the central Arctic doing white fronts and uh, cacklers, and then also Snow and Ross's geese. And then we have another crew um, that that uh, bans on Banks Island, uh, Western Arctic snow geese. And and as of this point, all of those uh, sites have been been cancelled for this year. Um, Variety of factors uh, held out a little bit longer in the Central Arctic um, and on Banks Island, hoping to be able to um, get a uh, northern-based crew from our northern region to do that work. So there's a lot of issues around... The logistics of working in the north obviously and also around traveling there um during during covid so uh both pre-isolation periods that are mandatory and also post-isolation depending on when you're where you're coming back from and also um you know a lot of discussions that happen with communities around approval to and to, to to travel through their communities so um on the way to some of our remote field camps we have to go through some of these remote communities uh which which have um you know, not the same access to healthcare that those of us that live in southern Canada have, and um, and and also uh, you know the risk that if something you know if there was an emergency or something we'd have to go back to that community and and so um, the decision to, to cancel those programs really was it was multifaceted, but we we're really respecting the wishes of some some of those communities that we not travel through there to do this work. So that'll be the second year that we haven't um, banded Arctic geese which is a concern for us. Um, right now, um, we're looking at the possibility of, of banning snow geese in northern Manitoba so that we can at least ban some mid-continent snow geese. So this is a site that Rocky Rockwell has, has you know, run for years at La Perouse Bay. Rocky can't come up this year, um, depending on what our guidelines around field work are. So around you know, hel- being, having multiple people in helicopters and um, staying you know, with each other in field camps. Uh, We're we're looking at maybe trying to do that work because we could run that out of Manitoba with a crew that doesn't have to go through any other communities. And it's thought that Churchill will probably be open by the time that work happens because it is a tourism hub. And and then just speaking for Manitoba and Ontario, those provinces are um, thought to be able to continue to run their subarctic Canada goose banning. So northern Ontario, northern Manitoba. Uh, interior or, or a Southern Hudson Bay population candidate that looks positive for them to be able to do that work.
1: I can't recall if we've had an episode where we talked about this or not, but banding data is, it's, it's always been important for a whole variety of uh, reasons and ways in which we use it to understand waterfowl population ecology and and movements. But increasingly, banding data and band return data are Are important for estimating population size for some of these species of of birds. Uh, Arctic nesting geese being one of the best examples at the moment using a method known as the Lincoln-Peterson estimate. And we're not going to get into that here, but just to to point out, that's one of the additional reasons why uh, lack of the ability to band, uh, band geese this year is of is maybe of heightened concern. And, you know, that's going to, that's going to create some pretty large uh, confidence intervals around those population estimates for these years, I would imagine, maybe for a couple of years into the future, as we have limited data during these uh, limited you know bands out there from these cohorts of birds. But uh, if I understand correctly, uh, Frank, there would be every intention to resume those, uh, snow goose colony studies and banding operations arctic goose banding operations in future years once uh, once people are able to move around right that's right yep
0: yeah, we'll we're looking forward to getting back to the normal slate of you know banding and uh these are tremendous long-term data sets we get amazing information from it like you suggested we get the, the estimates of abundance we get the estimates of harvest rate and survival rates and we also get other information like productivity from you know, looking at the age ratios of the of, of bandings in areas where we're banding breeding flocks, so some of that information we're going to miss. Um, fortunately, there's a lot of great minds, and you know, in in the waterfall community that are working on looking at how we can use um, some of the indirect recoveries of bands, so uh, birds that were banded in prior years, and use uh, that information perhaps to produce uh, Lincoln estimates in the absence of. Uh, you know annual bandings. So one thing we are not used to having gaps in our banding um, data, but it's become a an issue for a lot of waterfall populations, and and it's uh, forced some really bright minds out there to look at uh, you know some of the alternatives to how we can to, to how we can estimate things that we in a fashion that we may not have uh, you know needed to in the past.
1: That's a great point. And it's another opportunity here for me to, uh, to to point out that the collection and use of monitoring data for waterfowl habitats, waterfowl populations is of utmost importance to the waterfowl management community and our ability to make wise decisions on harvest regulations, uh, habitat management considerations, habitat conservation efforts, where and when and all those. I mean, it's, there's a number of ways in which all these data sets can come come to play. And it's an important uh, it's a re- reminder here that waterfowl hunters play a very crucial role in, uh, in, in providing those data through participating in harvest surveys, through reporting your bands, all of those types of activities that you're asked to participate in. Uh, we we always and always will encourage you to do so because that data is vital to the effective management of waterfowl populations. And it's why we've been so successful through the years. And if we lose that, then we begin to erode our ability to make some of those really wise and confident decisions. So uh, thanks to everyone out there for partic- participating in those programs. What about uh, duck banding uh, operations? later this year uh frank where do we stand on that we're still a few uh, maybe is there some time left to make some decisions about whether we're going to be able to um, to to do some duck banding in canada we're
0: optimistic about duck banning we we're able to ban ducks in saskatchewan and manitoba last uh, last august um and uh we're looking to run up to five duck banning stations in between Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. We're hopeful that the Fish and Wildlife Service will be able to come up and run their normal suite of sites. Um, I'm not too sure what their their timelines are or their drop-dead dates are, but um, I know they shifted some of that effort into uh, refuges in, on the U.S. side of the border last year and and were fairly nimble from that standpoint. So, I, I, yeah, like I said, I'm not exactly sure what their drop-dead date is, but it's it's probably creeping up. There's a lot of work that has to be done you know, around logistics, accommodation, equipment, For them to come back and run their normal sites here so uh but yeah we're 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 optimistic we'll be able to do it again um and uh we do have some challenges this year the same drought conditions can make banding challenging some of the traditional sites that we that we use um are gonna have have really low water conditions or some of them will probably be, be be dry and um when we get that low water it makes those sites really attractive to teal and in our experience, that can really create some issues catching mallards, which are, you know, target species. So teal get into these shallow, uh, shallow wetlands and they fill the traps really eat all the bait. And, and then we find ourselves having to move sites quite frequently throughout the year.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things that a lot of folks probably don't, uh, would would have never occurred to them that you could have too many ducks of one species that would cause a problem for your banding operations. (laughs) And when you are, when a lot of your harvest regulations and uh, decision processes depend on data from one particular species or, you know, several focal species, mallard certainly being one of those, uh, those become the birds that you have to target for your banding operations and teal can sometimes throw a wrench into that, so interesting little uh, factoid there for people to realize some of the some of what happens in in the waterfowl management world let me ask you this you might have mentioned this and i just uh, it, it just flew by me did did y'all band ducks in canada last year were y'all able to get out and do field work or was it totally shut down
0: yes no we did we were able to band uh, i think we got approval for field work on august 5th so it was it was quite late in uh, normally we're pre-baiting and late July, you know, getting, getting birds on site, scouting locations in late July this year, we couldn't get in the field until August 5th or sorry, last year we couldn't get in the field until August 5th. So we had a fairly compressed season. Uh, We did over, over a thousand mallards between Manitoba and Saskatchewan and, and lots of teal. And uh, typically we have at least one site in Saskatchewan that really focuses on Northern pintails. And um, they switched over to focusing on mallards this year, just because of the, the timing and, And uh, and I think some of their sites had lower numbers of pintails than than previous years, too. So I think they normally target teals a little bit earlier or sorry, uh, pintails a little bit earlier. Um, But, yeah, we did. We were able to run a couple sites last year.
1: Sounds like there will be banding, duck banding later this summer. I know there will be on the on the state side, whether any of those, as you mentioned, whether any of the. Whether any of the Fish and Wildlife Service will be able to get into Canada remains to be seen. But if they're not, I do know that they they would plan to shift those resources again, you know, Canada to some places in the the states where they could uh, they could ban birds. So, uh, at least we'll be able to to get some bans on some ducks out there this year, Uh, geese, it's less it's not going to be as productive as we normally, um, you know, in terms of banding operations that you mentioned, but, but we'll get back up and running on those things next year, uh, hopefully uh, certainly if if not then we've got some we probably have some issues that we're not looking at right now that aren't on our radar so hopefully we're fully back up to normal with all these monitoring programs next year and uh, so Frank I think that's gonna wrap it up for us here unless there's anything else that we wanted to talk about uh, with regard to sort of an update on where we are this field season Uh, data collection and banding and you know we talked about habitat conditions a little bit we're gonna have Pat Keogh on and maybe in a week or so he's going to give us an assessment across the prairies a uh, pretty good view of, of what he's seeing across a wide swath of the land but anything else that you wanted to to mention here to our listeners
0: i i know some people will be thinking about arctic phenology you know the the avid arctic goose hunters out there that know you know that the number of young in the population really drives the quality of the hunting season so some people might start be starting to think about phenology and it's a little bit early to really say in the in the arctic um but the next month will be crucial to you know to productivity of many of those arctic geese and um given that we won't have arctic banding this year we, we won't really have a great idea about productivity for different regions of the arctic until we um complete some of our uh, fall productivity surveys or age ratio surveys across the prairies so uh spoke to you a little bit about that last year. And um, uh, yeah, I'd say by October, we'll have a pretty good sense of what production was like across the Arctic.
1: All right. Well, we'll have to get back in touch with you or some of your colleagues to receive an update on what those surveys revealed. As you said, I think we did that last year. And so, we'll make that another part of our fall lineup and people can look forward to that. But for now... Uh, Frank. Let's wrap it up. Uh, thank you for joining us here on on the podcast. Thank you for sharing some insights from north of the border. And as I said earlier, best of best wishes uh, to to everyone up there getting through the the final months of hopefully the final months of this very weird time that we've been going through. So, thanks, Frank. And uh, we'll catch up with you sometime in the future.
0: Appreciate that, Mike. Thanks a lot. Enjoyed it.
1: A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Frank Baldwin, a waterfowl biologist with the Canadian Wildlife Service stationed up in Manitoba. We greatly appreciate his insights on everything from uh, the population survey to uh, to the border closure and kind of what we may be looking at with that this year and hopefully getting that opened up. Uh, as always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work he does with these podcasts. And to you, the listener, we thank you for joining us, sharing your time with us. And we thank you for your support of Wetlands and Waterfowl Conservation.